This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. I'm Mike Hussein, Director of the Center for Leadership and Change and the Faculty Director for the McNulty Leadership Program. My good friend and colleague, Ann Greenhall, is joining us here virtually, like us all. I uh, want to remind you, by the way, that episodes of our show premiere every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time here on Business Radio Sirius XM Channel 132. Uh, and before we get going here, just a quick question for you. We often do the week that was. So anything um, on the leadership frontier stand out in your own experience over the last, uh, let's make it the last seven days. Well, Mike, uh, I think one thing that has really struck me is how decision-making is being pushed upward. And I can just speak, and I know you've been in some meetings with me in which I've had reports ask me if it's okay for them to do something. And I, in turn, have had to send that uh, request upline, say to you, and then to the dean, and then to the provost. So there's a real uh, upward pressure uh, I've observed in decision-making. And wonder what you think about that. Uh, well, I certainly think about that and perceive it the same way. And I think it's probably because the decisions have become really, really impactful. So mm-hmm. for in our own case, do we open at all live in the fall or are we going to stay purely remote? It's a big decision exactly. that's going to come from the top. So here's my quick uh, comment on the week that was as well. I joined this uh, webinar, like many of our listeners these days, uh, actually yesterday, that included three chief executive officers, one of Corn Ferry, the big search firm, number two of Nike, and number three of UPS. And needless to say, they got quite a few employees in all three cases. And they each said in their own way, as they're reflecting on their leadership and what's really made a difference um, in, in recent weeks, All three said it has been vital and self-conscious for them to remain realistic, to be extremely factually driven on where we are, Mm -hmm. what's going to affect us, Mm -hmm. at the same time to also be optimistic. We're going to get through this. We're going to use this to advantage, even though it's an enormous setback now. So some combination of realism and optimism seem to be the, uh, the way of the world at the moment. Yeah, very good, Mike. Okay. Well, listen, Anna, I want to now just uh, introduce our guest. It's U.S. Ambassador Joseph Westfall. Uh, Joe, welcome to the program. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Anna. Joe, I'm going to ask you uh, a broad question to get us going. You've led in so many different settings with so many different institutions, from an academic um, ivory tower, so to speak, over to the Hill, and then in the Pentagon and in international relations. And thinking about your own role in each of those settings, is there a theme or a common element, if you will, that you had to remind yourself as a leader on the Hill or in the Pentagon or in um, the American Foreign Service that you used to remind yourself, uh, don't forget to do this as you made a difference. I guess to try to get that down to the essence, 
is there a common theme in your leadership in these very different institutions that um, you pretty much had to exercise or a, 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 a method you had to apply in leading in each of those terrains? Yeah, no, that's a good question, Mike. Um, you know, I started my career about 40 years ago, and it's, it, you know, everything sort of builds on itself. And I, I would say there are three things in my career that have uh, always um, been in the back of my mind is absolutely critical to what I've done, whether I've been in university or in government, because universities I work for happen to be public universities as well. And, then, and they are this. Uh, first of all, the the real importance of of public service, um, of why that's such a critical and important mission uh, that you are given and that you're um, you know you're you're lucky to have. Um, in all of these jobs, um, the constitution, the kinds of principles that are the formation and foundations of our country, always come to play. They they they're coming to play today in today's environment. Um, um, more than ever. And so they were always very front and center for me. And I, I can explain what I mean by all of that. And then the third thing was the need to, in leading people, uh, the, the importance or the need to, to build confidence and trust by those who work around you, both who work for you, but also who you work for. And those three principles always guided me through my my career. Um, I guess I would say that that throughout the career, you know, like everybody else, I made a ton of mistakes. I did some things wrong. I didn't I didn't pay attention to this, or I didn't work hard at something. And what I made sure throughout my career is that I learned from all of those issues and mistakes and errors and judgment or whatever it may have been. Um, thankfully they were never ethical issues. They were mostly just functioning, you know, administrative and management issues. So by the time I got to be ambassador, um, and I'll finish with this little story to answer your question. Um, early on when I was ambassador in Saudi Arabia, I was getting ready to have a senior staff meeting in my office. I sat in my place in the conference room by myself and suddenly I realized I, it was something like something overwhelmed me that I I felt really confident. It was a really tough time. We were being threatened by ISIS. We were there were lots of threats on the embassy, personal threats on me. The relationship with Saudi Arabia was very critical. It was also very complex. There was a lot of stuff going on, but I realized I felt really confident about what we were engaged in and, and, and about my leadership. And part of that was because I looked back as I sat there and I looked back at all these years and it was just one lesson after another that taught me how to have that confidence, how to build that trust, and how to always stay focused on the public service mission. Well, I'm wondering, Mike, if I could chime in and follow up. I'm just wondering, um, Joe, where your dedication and love of public service comes from. Well, you know, early on when I when I became a professor, um, and I, I used to teach the American government course. It was the basic course in American politics. It was the first course that I taught as a junior professor, as an assistant professor. 
And um, I began to love that course because generally you taught it to freshmen and sophomores. I had big classes. And in that course, you really had to educate, inform, but also build the, the awareness of our students in our political system, in our, um, the foundations of, of American politics. And I think that more than anything built in me a tremendous respect for what our country has stood for, despite all of its, you know, problems and issues and ups and downs. Um, and so public service became something that I thought was really critical to the advancement of our country into the future. So let me make sure I really heard, heard you right. So it was through teaching as a junior uh, faculty member? Yeah, I think that's where, that's where it started. And then, um, you know, I, I got tenure. I was an associate professor. I was head of the department. But then I got an opportunity to go to Washington on a fellowship, a hmm. uh, research fellowship. And um, soon after I got there, I, I, like a lot of people, had Potomac fever, fell in love with the place. And the next thing you know is I'm working in Congress. So now all of a sudden I, I am there. I'm working in the, in the U.S. Congress. And by the way, I was a professor who taught legislative process, legislative politics. So the opportunity to work in Congress was absolutely the, the most fabulous thing in the world. And that's where I really built this, this tremendous sense of, of the importance of public service. Uh, I was a staffer, um, but nevertheless, it, it was important. Hey, Joe, I'm going to jump. I'm going to jump back in. I was on mute before. My apologies. And Joe, I'm going to take you back to where Anne had you going as well on now looking for a moment or a mentor or some incident along the way when you were in Maine or on Capitol Hill that proved to be kind of a turning point or a developmental moment when it came to confidence in yourself for knowing what you're doing and number two, um, that kind of solidified your commitment to public service. So it doesn't sure. have to be a big moment, but some turning point, so to speak. Well, I would say there were two contrasting moments. Um, the first one was during the Reagan administration. I worked for President Reagan. And um, uh, it struck me funny when I first went to work. I worked for an assistant secretary of the Department of Interior, and that I was, um, I wasn't made to sign anything, but I was made to promise that I would never reveal anything that I heard or saw or dealt with in that, in my job there in the Department of Interior. And I, I, I said, yes, of course, I, I'll respect that. Um, but then I didn't realize that what I would see would be some some of the ugliest things that you could imagine in any political environment. Um, late in the evening, senior people in the department getting together and deciding how they were going to um, uh, undermine a particular governor or a particular congressman who didn't, mm -hmm. uh, who was in opposition. You know, obviously, most of them Democrats and, and people that they wanted to either see defeated or, or were in a fight against. And I mean, these things were, I wouldn't say they were blatantly illegal, but they were political maneuverings that I felt were not, not in, in line with what I, 
what I felt was the importance of public service. There was an environment of distrust and win at all costs. The Reagan people hated the Bush people. He was the vice president, but nevertheless, they pushed him out. And they didn't tr trust the federal civil servant at all. So li literally everything was being done by the political people. That was Reagan. And then when I worked for President Clinton, particularly towards the end of his administration, at that time I was Assistant Secretary of the Army with Senator Corps of Engineers. And the president was uh, being, uh, you know, obviously having, having to deal with the Monica Lewinsky situation. So he and a good part of the White House staff were deeply involved in that. And um, But what I saw was something very different. I saw... Uh, all of us who worked in issues related to water, environment, natural resources, um, really pulling together and saying, okay, we don't, we don't, we need to continue to do the work we were supposed to be doing. We can do this. Um, we're not going to get involved with the Monica Lewinsky thing and we're going to persevere. And I thought it was the best government uh, that any country could ever have in that last a year and a half, two years of Clinton, because everybody worked hard and just sort of ignored what was going on in the headlines, and we did our work, and we were very successful. And most of us were people who had worked for him from the very beginning. So those two, in, you know, the, the ugly part in the Reagan administration, the good part in the Clinton administration, taught me a lot about public service and how it can go. Yeah. Joe, it's such a reminder to our listeners that Looking at the moments, especially with the benefit of a little hindsight, where, where mm -hmm. your values were on the line, where the future was somehow being shaped, uh, can be uh, an enduring classroom, so to speak, for the future. Let me, uh, before I turn this back over to Anne, remind our listeners, Joe, that this is Leadership Action, Business Radio, Series XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Mike Usain. I'm here with Anne Greenhall. And we are in active discussion with former U.S. Ambassador to Saudi Arabia, one Joseph Westfall. And over to you. Oh, thank you, Mike. Uh, Joe, if I may follow up, uh, you have given Mike two examples, one negative, one positive, that were um, very instructive moments in your career. May I go back just for a moment and ask you about teaching and doing? You said at the top of the hour that your love of public service came through the act of teaching, and you were teaching students about the legislative process, and then you found yourself in Congress. Tell me, tell me what came as a surprise to you. Here you've been teaching the subject matter, and now you're doing it. What was surprising? Um. I guess not. Well, that's a really good question. It's 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 not that easy to answer that because uh, what you what you tend to be surprised by are, are basically things you just didn't 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 know about how government works. So, in the Reagan administration, I learned how government works, mm -hmm. and one of the ways that I learned that was the the Secretary of the Interior um, needed to create a new agency. And I had been assigned to work for him for a while, and he just basically turned to me, and he said, "I want you to do this," and he gave me the parameters. But I didn't. But he, what he didn't know, 
because he, you know, he was busy with other things and I was just a very junior person was that I didn't really have a staff and I really didn't have, you know, uh, resources to do this, but I was given the task. So I literally created an agency by myself. Um, I wrote the department manual. I wrote the position descriptions. I negotiated with the White House, with OMB, um, the creation of the agency, which was not easy in, in, the, in, the, in the administration, we were trying to cut the budget. I then negotiated with the Hill, the enabling legislation, and then, then the appropriation. So I literally did everything by myself. And in, in doing that, I, I cut my teeth on politics and also saw the good and the, the bad and the ugly of, of politics, you know, dealing with members of Congress who wanted to compromise on a number of things and all of that. But going back to the teaching, you know, teaching students about, um, take the issues that we're dealing with today, for example, the issues yeah. of Black Lives Matter and equality and, and racism in America, you know, and I had to think about as a political scientist, how do I, how do I make students understand, for example, on the civil liberties, civil rights issues, how do I make them understand how this affects them personally? And I would think about, think about, think about this, and I came up with this this method um, where I, I I would walk in in the middle of a semester to a class talking about civil liberties, and I would I would say, you know what? I think we'd be better off talking about um, uh, these issues if we didn't have black people in the class. Mm. And you know, the majority of the students were white, so I said, let's vote to kick the blacks out. And then let's vote to kick the Asians out. Or let's vote to kick this out and this out. And by the end of the day, by the end of the class, we had literally kicked everybody out. <laughs> right. The only right. one left was myself. And the reason was because there was nobody, because I kicked, kicked people out who had blonde hair or blue eyes or didn't <laughs> like people who were tall. Or By the end of the day, the lesson was we are all unique. We're all vulnerable to discrimination. And those kinds of things I, I learned as a teacher, as a teacher, as a political scientist, as a professor, and also to, to, to stay relevant with the students, not to teach pure theory, but to stay relevant with them about uh, how these issues affect them and our society. Mm, very good. May I just follow up and ask, uh, did you have preconceptions about the role of ambassador? And once you live that role, you realize what you thought and what it is. Yeah, I, 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 the, the preconceptions were actually pretty negative. Um, I had worked in, as when I was acting secretary of the army, I had, um, Donald Rumsfeld was the secretary, so I worked closely with him and liked him very much, but he had kind of a disdain for the diplomatic corps. And I had never really spent much time uh, at all um, working in that environment, except that I had done some work around the world, traveling on behalf of, of certain agencies where I had to deal with embassies and I had to deal with, with um, with foreign service folks. So I had a, I had a minimal knowledge. Um, but the coming out of the Pentagon, uh, in those days, the, the attitude towards state and towards what they did and 
how they did things was fairly negative. So I, you know, President Obama surprised me when he asked me to serve as ambassador to Saudi Arabia. At the time, I was undersecretary of the army, and I didn't realize that 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 um, I was even being considered for that. And so he surprised me. I accepted, and then I realized what an incredible job that is, and how important it is, uh, how absolutely important it is. Mm-hmm. And I'm very very saddened to see what's going on today because I think we have so many vacancies at, yeah. at state, not only in the building but also in, around the world. Yeah. where we could be making a difference and we're not. Right. Yeah. I know we have just a moment or two left, mm. but would you say in a word there's a difference between having influence and of course power and control and we sometimes underestimate the importance of influence? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, uh when you when you as a nation are fully engaged around the world, um whether you agree with other countries or other you know, other um, political leaders, the important thing is that you're engaged with them. You're able to have dialogue with them. You're able to to, to negotiate. Uh, when you don't have that, um, mm-hmm. you 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 are unable to. When we were starting the conversation, or before maybe we came on the air, and you you mentioned something I thought was very interesting. You said, you know, that we tend to push decisions up these days. Yes. Up, up the ladder. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that gives me great confidence in our country and in our system is that despite what you're seeing today, where every decision, people are afraid to talk because they don't want to get the the, the big guy at the White House upset and, mm-hmm. and all of that, is that when you look at our government, it's pretty big. And there are so many people working in every area that you can imagine, whether it's defense, education, you name it. Mm-hmm. And they do have a lot of autonomy. They do have a lot of authority granted to them by Congress, through legislation, and by the rules of the agency. Mm-hmm. So we have a, a very dynamic um, group of people, public servants, mm-hmm. uh, who are carrying on their work, the jobs every day. And they are the ones that I think are able to get our country still move forward in a a positive way. Oh, very good. You give me hope. (laughs) All right, Mike. When President Obama called you to serve as ambassador to Saudi Arabia, uh, you no doubt uh, had to think about that for at least a few minutes in many ways, including what would you need to know to go from uh, undersecretary of the army with more than a million people working with you to an embassy in Riyadh, the capital of Saudi Arabia, and to lead uh, a different world. So just to get uh, to the sharp edge of the question, many of our listeners I know have taken a significant um, sideways step or upward step in their own leadership. How did you think about your sideways and in this case also upward step in your leadership? Right. Uh, good question, Mike. Um, I had, as Undersecretary of the Army, and this is where you and I first met, um, You, if you remember, the Congress had given the Undersecretary of the Army the responsibility of being the manager of the force, what we call force manager. So you're basically managing the, the Army. And in addition to that, they gave the Undersecretary the task of being the chief management officer. And that meant you know, uh, 
basically transforming the business operations of the army, which are huge. It's just like a big corporation. Mm -hmm. it, does, it has the same functions that a, you know, an Amazon has today, you know, deployed all over the world, you know, uh, I mean, just the same functions without getting into the details of that. So that was my job, and I had been doing that, and I realized that the way to do that was through great team building, get people to agree that, you know, we needed to do this work, how we needed to do this work, and slowly build strong teams to do it. And um, so when I when the president asked me to go to Saudi Arabia, I really didn't know what to expect. I didn't have a lot of time to think about it because he gave me like three days to make the decision. And then I was deep in confirmation and I had to get confirmed by the Senate, which was done pretty quickly. So the next thing you know is I'm, I'm actually arriving in Saudi Arabia with the president uh, in our first meeting with the king. But it was after that that I realized when I got acquainted with my embassy staff that they were very different than the people in the Pentagon. Um, they were more like a faculty in a university. They were more like an academic place. Uh, they weren't, they, they didn't like playing in teams. They didn't like sharing information. They didn't like um, uh, sort of, they didn't, it's not that they didn't trust each other, but they, they felt that they had to control the areas they were working in. So the political officer, the commercial attaché, the the uh, um, the economic officer, you know, they they didn't they didn't really uh, participate very well together. And I realized this was going to be a real problem uh, that I couldn't really manage this very large embassy over a thousand people well and do the job for the president and the country without building some cohesion in this group. So I essentially spent a good deal of time building teams, getting them, persuading them that it was in their interest to work as a team, uh, to help each other, to leverage each other's work, and to trust each other. And it was not easy at first, but I, but I was able to get it done without being uh, in any way arrogant or pushy or punishing anybody. It was, it was all about really convincing them that they would be better off that they worked as a team. And, and they did. And by the time, you know, within a year and a half, we were a really outstanding team. And I think other embassies even looked at us and said, you know, that they thought we were a great model. Um, so there was that difference of culture in the two places. And I think that persists today in many places. Yep. Joe, a quick uh, tactical question on what you just said. We're all very concerned, obviously, about teams, maybe especially now during the coronavirus, where we really have to be together to pull together. Was there, in your own experience in Riyadh there at the embassy, a tactic that really seemed to work for you in, in creating that sense of camaraderie and common purpose? Yeah, I think, well, initially, I had to force it a little bit. Um, so when, when you're in an embassy, particularly one that far away from your home, the United States, uh, you get one leave a year where the government pays for you and your family to go back home or to go on your vacation. And, um, and so that's a really nice deal because, you know, they, they'll, they'll fly you and your family home. But you only get that once a year. 
And so a lot of members of the embassy staff wanted to take, you know, three, four weeks of leave to go do that. But that was a terrible inconvenience to the work that we were trying to do because we needed everybody. We needed teams uh, functioning, you know, at the embassy. So, you know, one of the things I had to do is persuade them that if they could work as a team, if the political officer and the economic officer could actually team up with their respective groups of people, that then they certain people could take that kind of leave and go hmm. and not be missed and everything would flow because you'd be sharing the work. Hmm. And when they started doing that, they felt that that was something that worked. We did that at, at DOD a lot, and it was, uh, I think, very effective. Great, great. Uh, I've made kind of note here, Joe, of, of the yeah. tactic of helping people appreciate that teamwork mm-hmm. is indeed in their own self-interest along with that of the national interest. Mm-hmm. And, and that's critical. Cool. The, self, the, the self-interest or the, the, the fact that this is in their best interest, if you can't convince them of that, uh, people mm-hmm. are people. They're, not, they're mm-hmm. not going to necessarily abide by mm-hmm. some of these yep. things. So just such a good reminder that uh, the world runs on public interest and self-interest and Mm -hmm. in a leadership position, we got to remember both. So hand over to you. Yeah, very good. Mike, I really appreciate that you asked that follow-up question because I was wondering the same. It's one thing to say that I created occasions to get people to work together as a team, but but another matter to actually do it. And Joe, I hear that you did it by uh, encouraging their their own self-interest and giving, giving is this true, giving them um, projects or aspects of the work in which they needed to collaborate on so that, say, the, um, you know, the political and the economic uh, work were entwined. Is that right? Is that right? So there were particular yeah. projects. Yes, absolutely. And, and one more variable attached to that is, uh, information, you know, we all know information is power, and, right. and so some people want to not share information because they think they they have more power that way. And I, I I had to convince them that sharing information was actually to the benefit of their teams or of, of 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 each one of them. So, for example, if the political officer who's always felt the stuff they worked on was more more secret, more confidential, because it dealt with, you know, um, sort of higher risk kinds of things. Uh, The economic officer dealt with more practical things, that the sharing of that information would stay confidential. They had to trust each other. Mm. So I I brought them to work together. And I would bring, you know, sometimes the lessons of the military were what I would use. I would sit down, let's say, a commanding general, uh, would come in to see me, the, the chief of staff of the Air Force or the uh, CNO of the Navy or somebody would come in to, to visit. And they would sit in my office and they they would be sitting next to their respective uh, um, folks that worked for them, including, for example, if it was an Army, it would be the, the command sergeant major, you know, a, a senior enlisted, uh, or an NCO, excuse me. And um, and I would bring our people in, and then I would not just bring the political officer, but I'd bring the economic officer, and I'd bring some of the other uh, sections of the embassy to the meeting mm. to let everybody know that 
just like the military shares information we needed to share, they all needed to know what we were working on. That's great. So nothing stays in one, uh, you know, get rid of those uh, stovepipes, which are, right. are terrible. Did you also work informally, you know, uh, whether it's um, dinners or, uh, you know, cultural or educational Absolutely. gatherings? Could Absolutely. you speak to that in changing culture? Yeah, the the... First of all, as ambassador, um, in in a place like Saudi Arabia, the U.S. was the only the U.S. ambassador. I was the only person who regularly met with the king, with the crown prince, with the deputy crown prince, with the mm. ministers. I mean, I had access. If I wanted a meeting with the king, I could have it the next day. If yeah. his wow. permitted it. <laughs> that was not the case for anyone else. I don't care what embassy you you talking to that did not happen. Mm-hmm. Um, the the British had a little better access than most, and the French as well. But mm-hmm. beyond that, not not much. So what would happen is I would go to a meeting with with the king or with the crown prince, and we would take up some critical issues. Or President Obama would come in, and they'd have you know we'd have mm-hmm. meetings. Well, the rest of the the all the other ambassadors from yeah. around the world. <laughs> would be dying to find out what we talked about. Sure. So I would have a meeting. I would call them all to my embassy. They would sit, sit, around, sit around a big table. Nice. And I would give them a rundown of the things, of course, that I could talk about. Right. Um, and I would let them know because the idea was that I also needed them to provide me certain information from time to time yeah. of a different nature about their own countries and how we would, you know... And so uh, that was a, that was that was one tactic, and then the second thing I would say is, when I when I ran the you know when I was the force manager in the army when I was the undersecretary, I was like a chief operating officer of any corporation in the world. Mm-hmm. I did exactly the same things that you do if you're the chief operating officer of I used Amazon the last time or, or any company Federal Express or well you name it. Um, all the business functions, all the um, the logistics, the personnel, the you know everything that you do in a corporation. I had to manage for the United States Army. It's a huge enterprise, one of the largest in the world. That lesson transferred itself to even my small job as ambassador, because I saw myself generally as a not only a CEO but also as a chief operating officer. Mm. Um, because the business operations of the embassy were just as important, the management of personnel, um, you know, the logistics of things, working with the military, working with the interagency, making sure I was always briefing the president and the, and the national security advisor. So, it, you know, it's, it's, it all blended in afterwards. Mm, very good. Well, thank you for that. Mike? Joe, I just need to remind everybody that this is Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm Mike Uceam. I'm here with Ann Greenhall. And our guest, of course, is former U.S. Ambassador Joseph Westfall. And, Joe, as we begin now to come close to the end of our time together, I want to now have you look back on your career in academe, uh, in Congress, in the Department of Defense, and certainly then as uh, representative for the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. 
And my guess is many people that are listening today or viewing today are thinking, uh, I've had good stretches, I've had tough stretches, I've led in different uh, settings. And my question thus, just to get it going, is of the different leadership roles you have played, which personally has been most appealing to you for per more personal reasons or maybe national reasons, and which of your many roles has been uh, kind of the toughest to get your hands around to lead well? Yeah. Um, well, I, I would say that being the Undersecretary of the Army was one of the most rewarding ones and one of the most, but also one of the most challenging ones. I mean, here we are, we are in an army, we're very large, we're very complex, and we are involved in two major wars, Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, we're having tons of issues um, inside and outside the force. Uh, we're moving to to try to move women into more, um, well, combat roles, to put it bluntly, to move women uh, on a more equal basis with men uh, in in the business of, of soldiering. Uh, we're trying to eliminate sexual assault, which is rampant at the time, uh, not just in, in the theaters of Afghanistan and, and uh, Iraq, but also at home and in our bases. We have forces deployed all over the world, um, from Africa to Asia to Latin America. Um, so a very complex time, uh, but at, at the same time, a um, you know a Secretary of Defense who understands this is Gates who understands the the value and importance of diplomacy uh, and shares that with the Secretary of State and at, at that time it was Hillary Clinton. Um, we have a Secretary of Defense who supports the President's uh, initiatives to eliminate the don't ask don't tell and get rid of the, that a particular factor which was not easy. I worked on that um, on a committee that, that worked to uh, basically undo the don't ask, don't tell policy. So we had a lot of challenges inside and outside the force. And then managing the force, you know, managing this multi-billion dollar entity that spends a lot of money and wastes a lot of money, not intentionally wasting it, but, you know, it's just part of the nature of not being as efficient as you should be and not integrating all your your, mm -hmm. your various uh, elements together. So then you're dealing with Congress, and you have to deal, deal with both parties, you know. So all, the, all that I did during that period of time was all based on lessons that I had learned. I had learned to work with Congress, to work with both parties. When I worked in Congress, I worked for Republicans and Democrats. I worked in the House. I worked in the Senate. And so I, I, and I knew members, and I knew how Congress worked, and I knew the the, the way to to make things happen there. Uh, I understood the, the the priorities in the White House that were not always going to be the same as my priorities. But I always had to remember, it's not the Westfall administration; it's the Obama administration. So you know, try to do the best you can to support your leadership, but also use your your authorities. Um, that are given to you by Congress and by law uh, to do the best for for the country, and yep. and those are the things that were that were a guiding guiding force. Joe, a quick follow up from me, and then over to Anne. I think I'm hearing two 
kind of thematic thoughts there. Number one, uh, complexity requires more from you. You've got to manage many different parties, some warring, some friendly, some unfriendly. And so uh, in a moment or a setting of greater complexity, many, many contending forces, all the more important to be really good at the exercise of your leadership. That's point number one, <laughs> just to offer it up for your thought. And then point number two, your job as a leader is made enormously, not easier, but it's more readily achieved if you've got great leadership above you, whether Secretary of Defense or in the White House or <clears throat> on Capitol Hill. So what, what do you think about both of those thoughts that I've just picked out from what you've said. Yeah. On the latter point, just one very basic element. Um, faith in your leadership is very, very important. Um, you, you, you know, it's important to feel that the leadership that you have above you, who you don't always agree with, um, you know, you have faith in them. Um, I had faith, for example, in, 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 President Obama, Vice President Biden, in in our Secretaries of Defense, I had faith in them. I didn't always agree with the directions of certain decisions they made, um, tactical or otherwise. But I, I had faith in their fundamental set of principles that they operated under. Um, I remember reading President Obama's first speech uh, in the Arab by any president in the Arab world. A speech he gave in 2009 at the University of Cairo in Egypt, um, the first time a president had ever gone to the Middle East and addressed, um, made a speech there. And it was a, a remarkable speech, but it was a speech that, that, that emphasized what he stood for, what he believed in, what his principles were. And so whether he always acted on them or not was not as critical as the fact that I felt he, he, he had that foundation and that was a, that was important, and I, I liked what I, what I heard there in that speech. The other thing, Michael, which is something that no matter where you work, whether you work in a university, whether you work in a big corporation, or you work in government, that I always felt was important, and this may sound trivial to some people, but it's building the relationships before you do the business. Building relationships so you can gain people's trust and confidence. So when I went to Saudi Arabia, and I first got there early on, the White House was sending me all kinds of directions to do this, do that, do this, do that, ask for this, ask for that. And I refused to listen to all that stuff. I just, I was the ambassador and I was gonna build the relationship with the leadership. At the time, the current king was the crown prince. So I had to deal with him a lot. So I started building a, a friendship with him. Uh, and that meant that we had to talk about things other than business talk about our families, talk about our countries, talk about our, our, our desires to have a better relationship. Uh, me learning from him more about his country, about his culture, about his religion, et cetera, et cetera. And I did that. And that enabled me eventually to go to him and to go to the crown prince or whoever you know I needed to talk to and bring up a tough issue like human rights. Uh, bring up a tough issue. Bring up tough issues dealing with terrorism, counterterrorism. Um, you know, and and I could do it because now we had built that relationship of of some trust and confidence, and they knew that I wasn't going to go screaming to the press 
and I wasn't going to leak information, that our relationship was about building a better partnership. I think you do that in every job. And mm -hmm. I did that in Congress. I did that in the Pentagon and in academia. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, when I was a chancellor, my God, you know, probably the toughest job I ever had was being chancellor. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm serious. We understand. I, 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 you believe I, it. Yeah, you could be, <laughs> yeah it's, it's, I, it's, the jobs are so difficult because obviously you have a whole campus of very wise, experienced, um, notable scholars, all who think that they have the best answer to everything. Mm. And so, uh, so that was a real challenge. But the way to do that was to build relationships with the faculty senate, mm -hmm. to build relationships with the, with the, not only the deans but also the chairs mm -hmm. of departments, and and try to try to have get them to have some confidence in your leadership. It wasn't always easy, yep. and it's never that all that fast. A lot of it has to do with your personality, too. You know, mm. Some people just don't have it in them. So, Joe, very well put, and a yeah. good set of notes to end on. And now we're going to need, indeed, to end on a after-action review, which, by the way, Ann and I have learned from your armed forces, yes. a common practice in, in all the branches of the U.S. armed forces. After an event, what do we want to take from it? Ann, why don't you get us going? And then, Joe, I'm going to call on you, and then I'll finish off with a couple of thoughts from the day we really want to hang on to and we urge our listeners to pay attention to. Right. Well, hand over to you. Well, Mike, thank you. Uh, what really stands out uh, from this conversation for me is the importance of relationships, the importance of building teams. Uh, and so that is the chief takeaway that I have. You know, we heard Joe talk about building relationships as an ambassador, not only with the with uh, the leadership in Saudi Arabia, but other ambassadors and modeling this, having his uh, political and economic staff work together. So, you know, I'm thinking of that wonderful title, Team of Teams, is what, what I'm hearing here. Great. Joe, how about you? What would you like all of us, Anna, myself included, to really hang on to from our commentary? Well, I think Ann captured it exactly right. I think building <laughs> building teams, building confidence, building trust in people uh, is, is so critical. I mean, you see it today in American politics that nobody trusts anybody else. Uh, you know, everybody is, is questioning people. And, and part of that is because there's a real void in understanding what public service really means. Um, you know, that sometimes you have to have the courage to stand up for certain principles, even though they may not be the most popular ones in the world, you know. Um, so we we have, you know, I mentioned at the very early start that for me, one of the things that higher ed are my job as an academic for, as a political science professor. I think the the greatest thing that I learned from that was about how our constitutional system should work. And there are periods of time in our history when it hasn't worked, when it's been cracked and broken and splintered. You know, we had a civil war. We've, we've had so many big issues. I lived in the 60s during the civil rights movements and the anti-war movement in Vietnam. So we lived through 
some terrible periods in the United States, and we're living through one today. We're so divided and so partisan, and we don't even know what partisan means anymore, because in the old days, you knew. You knew what the Republican Party stood mm-hmm. for, the Democratic Party stood for. Now you don't have any of that. Uh, it's, it's just uh, uh, titles that don't capture any ideas or concepts. But we still have that constitutional foundation. And I saw it in play yesterday, briefly, and I'll just end with this. I saw it in play yesterday, and it gave me a sense of appreciation for that, which was when the president issued his tweet that we probably needed to delay the election. Even the majority leader of the Senate, who's been one of the stalwart supporters, said no. The election will take place when it's supposed to take place. Yep. And to yep. me, there's still a semblance of respect for those um, those principles of our country. John Ann, well put. I've got seven words I wrote down. Here they are. They're really extracted from what you've just said. Relationships, teams, confidence, trust, courage on the more personal side, and then two elements on the more organizational or more public side. Number one, public service, serving something larger than yourself. And then finally, don't forget the Constitution. So <laughs> Very good. Thank you. Want to thank you, Joe, for being with the program. We really appreciate it. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Ann. Good to be with you. And I want to thank everybody for joining us. If you've got a question, you know where to reach us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And you can follow us on Twitter as well. Special thanks, of course, to our guest, once again, Ambassador Joseph Westfall. Want to thank our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. I'm Mike Uceam. I'm here with Ann Greenhall. And you've been listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Come back. Be safe. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.